Jesus, Messiah, you are, you are Lord of all. You are Adonai. You own this day. You own the blue sky and the sun we've already enjoyed this morning. Adonai, you own this building. You own every life that's in it. You own the bodies that contain those lives. We are your servants. We have come before you today to worship you. We've come before you today to know you better. God, we want to be faithful servants. We want to be true servants. Yet, Lord, sometimes we walk through a world that tests our ability to trust in you. That tests our ability to obediently follow you. So, God, we are here today to be ministered to, to be encouraged, to be given hope, to be given a knowledge of our Lord that we might leave here this day with one goal, one desire, and that is to faithfully serve you, to follow you, and to walk with you through all that this coming week holds. As our owner, as our good and faithful owner, you know our needs, you know our hurts. God, would you minister in those areas right now? I pray right now that each of us knows we're in the presence of the living God. And that becomes our hope and that becomes our strength. Lord, help us to entrust you with those hurts, those fears, those challenges. And may that trust be so great that it just results in a rest. It results in a peace. It gives us the ability to now focus our heart and our mind on your word and your truth so that we're prepared for this week ahead. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. You know, the Lord is going to reveal himself in our lives and he reveals himself in his word in ways that at times we just don't get it. We just don't get what he's doing. We don't get it because maybe we don't like it. We don't get it because maybe we can't see it. We don't get it because maybe we can't understand it. He's going to do that. He works in those ways that we just don't get it. And it's at those moments that you and I are called to have faith. Now, that faith isn't meant to be blind. It's not meant to be dumb. Just trust, even though everything says there's no reason to. No, in those times that we don't get it, we anchor our faith in these things that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. We anchor our faith in the character of God. We know that He's true. We know that He's righteous. We, we know that He's doing what is good. So even though I don't get it, in this moment, even though I don't understand what he's doing or I don't understand this thing about him, I trust in what I do know. I put my faith in what I do understand because he's going to do things we don't get. He's going to be things that we just don't understand. I've suggested already that we should be somewhat comfortable in that. Why would we be comfortable? Because I think we all need a God who's not limited by what we can see and understand. Wouldn't that limit him? Even if I don't like what I perceive him to be doing, wouldn't that be limiting to him if he could only move and work and be in our lives what we could process? 
No, I need a God that's bigger than that. I need a God that can work beyond my understanding, beyond my perception. And the Lord has promised He is indeed that God. He said to us in Isaiah 55, He said, you know, my ways are not your ways and your thoughts are not my thoughts. This is the Lord's declaration. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's the distance. That's the height. That's the difference between your ways and my ways, between your thoughts and my thoughts. God is not going to reduce himself. God is not going to limit himself by what we can see and understand. And that should make a good bit of sense. You know, as we think about these attributes we've learned about God, we've seen he's infinite. He's infinite in his power. He's infinite in his wisdom. He's infinite in his existence. Well, if there's all this infiniteness, I don't think that's a word. But if there's all this infiniteness about God, then guys, sooner or later, that doesn't mean he's not going to pour well into a finite mind. Sooner or later, the infinite cannot be shoved fully and wholly into the finite. So he's going to be out there beyond what we can see and understand. And boy, we come to just that kind of thing today as we come to answer this question, what is the Trinity? This is something that God has revealed that just almost doesn't make sense. It just almost doesn't work. We're just not going to quite get this. It's a little bit beyond us to, to grab a hold of this one. To me, this is something that clearly there's no way man could have invented this. It's there because it's what God has revealed about Himself. It's because He wants you and I to know Him, and this is what He wants us to know about Him, even though it is a very difficult topic to explain. It's a very difficult topic to understand. My goal today is not that you walk out of here in a few moments and say, wow, I never knew the Trinity was so simple. I I never knew it could be explained so easily. If you heard that, you weren't listening to me this morning because I don't think I can do that for you. What I do want to do today is try to show you how clearly the Scripture does communicate this idea, this concept about God. You know, when I say how the Scripture communicates, the word Trinity, some of you probably know this, the word Trinity actually is not in Scripture. You you can't look that up. Where is the word Trinity? It's not there. Trinity is a, is a word we use to describe what is in Scripture. It, it's a word we use to describe what is defined for us in Scripture. This idea of oneness and threeness. And so what we want to look at today is what the Scripture says about this oneness and about this threeness. Let's think, think first on this oneness. You know that the Judeo-Christian faith is what we call monotheistic. It's one God. Everybody inside the Judeo-Christian faith considers it monotheistic. Everybody outside our faith throughout history has looked at Judaism, has looked at Christianity as a monotheistic religion. They believe in one God. And that is what Scripture reveals from Genesis to Revelation. We have one God. Probably the single most well-known verse in the Jewish faith would be Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 is what they called the, the great Shema. It was their great confession of faith. 
And the reason it was called the Great Shema, Shema is a, a Hebrew word, it means to hear, and it was the first word in that sentence. It would have sounded something like this, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elheinu, Yahweh Ehad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That may not rattle your bones, but I'll tell you something, that was a huge confession of faith throughout Old Testament history because every people group, every nation that surrounded them believed in polytheism. They believed in a multiplicity of gods. And yet we have this one nation, we have this one people group, just one on the whole planet that is saying, no, there is but one God. So whatever the Trinity is, whatever the Trinity is, it is not a presentation of three gods. The Scripture is clear. There is one God. We see that throughout the Old. The New Testament certainly continues in that idea. It says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, there is no God but one. No God but one. James 2, 19 says, you believe in one God, you do well. There is just one God. All the way throughout the history of Judeo-Christian faith, all the way throughout the Scripture, it is adamantly opposed to any concept, to any idea of multiple gods. It clearly says there is one God. His name is Yahweh. He is the Holy One of Israel. But, <laughs> inside this oneness, there's a threeness. There's not three gods. But there is a threeness. Because as the Scripture says, over and over and over, there is one God. It presents the Father. It recognizes the Father as God. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see two distinct beings there. Yet there's one God. God the Father. The Scripture presents Jesus as God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him, in Him, in Jesus, the entire, notice that word entire, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells in bodily form. When you look at Jesus, you're not looking at a part of God. You're not looking at a portion of God. You are looking at the entire God. 100% of God. Last week we saw in John 20, 28, that great confession of faith of Thomas, my kurios, my Lord, and my theos, my God. So Jesus is recognized as God. The Holy Spirit is recognized as God. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3 to 4, it says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to men, but you've lied to who? To God. To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. And folks, in all these verses we're looking at today, and I'm just hitting a verse here and a verse there, these are not the only verses that recognize the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The only verses that show oneness or show threeness. I'm just showing you a few. They're all throughout Scripture. The Scripture also has verses that bring all three of these together in one place. Matthew 28, 19, a verse we know pretty well. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now I want to show you something interesting about this verse. 
Make, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the what? In the name. Do you notice anything about that word? It's singular. You say, okay, so what? <laughs> well, how many names follow it? Three. Well, folks, good English grammar and good Greek grammar should say baptizing them in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it's singular. It's always singular. Baptize them in the singular, the one name, the one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know what you have right here? This is how much this doesn't make sense. What you have in that verse, what you have in that singular form of name, you have bad grammar, good theology. You see, there's, there's no way, there's no writer, the writer can express it. It's going to be bad grammar. I'm just going to have to put singular name, but that's good theology because there's just one God. Not only do we see all three here together equally just listed as, as a name, but we see all three moving and working together. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles for this one. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the chairs in front of you. If it's not right in front of you, it's around you. Point to it. Somebody will hand it to you. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Familiar story. This is the story of Jesus being baptized. Matthew 3. First book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3. We're not reading the whole story. We're just going to look at verses 16 and 17. Matthew 3, verse 16. It says, After Jesus was baptized, He went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on Him. And there came a voice from heaven, This is My beloved Son. Now, it didn't say the voice from heaven is God the Father, but who else can call somebody a son? God the Father. A voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, I take delight in him. So here in this story, we see all three members of the Trinity active at one moment. You have God the Son being baptized. He's the one in physical bodily form. We have the Holy Spirit. It says like a dove. It didn't say it was a dove. It said the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. He came down to touch, to light on, to anoint Jesus. And we have God the Father speaking in heaven. All three moving. All three active. All three speaking in this moment. You know, it's important to see this. Because the Trinity is difficult to understand, we get a lot of false views and a lot of false teachings about what the Trinity is. Some people say, well, you know, the, the Trinity, what's happening here is that's just how God shows himself at different times and places. That's how God shows himself at different times to, to different people. So sometimes he shows himself as the father. Maybe at other times he, he shows himself as the son. At other times as the Holy Spirit. But here we've got all three at the exact same moment, at the exact same time, moving and working and speaking all three together, all three, 100% God. He's not showing himself in different ways. He's being what he is all at the same time. And when you look at each member of the Trinity, you're looking at 100% God. Each one of them is not a portion of God. Each one of them is not a piece of God. But they are the entire fullness of God. So when I'm looking at the Father, when I'm looking at the Son, when I'm looking at the Holy Spirit, even individually, I'm looking at 100% of God. 
This is what the scripture shows us. Now, there's no doubt that we see the Trinity a lot more clear in the New Testament than we do in the Old. It, it tends to be, in some people's minds, more of a New Testament teaching. And part of the reason for that is, historically, the Jewish faith certainly did not acknowledge a trinity. They, they didn't see a trinity in their monotheism, and their expression of this one God. And yet, as we go back into the Old Testament, no doubt... No doubt, it, the, the New Testament helps us go back and see that. But there are some places in the Old Testament where you've got some real problems. And it's only an understanding of the Trinity that clears those problems up. Because you do have a God who sends the Spirit of God. I mean, how can God be over here and be sending the Spirit of God? That seems to be two distinct beings. That's God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. You've got a character that appears all the way throughout the Old Testament. He's known as the angel of the Lord. Now, a lot of times we'll get quickly diverted. We see that word angel and say, well, it's an angel. And that's pretty good reason. Most of the time you see the word angel, you should assume that, should assume that an angel goes with that. But the name angel is a Hebrew word. It simply means messenger. And so there is this character all the way throughout the Old Testament. He never appears again after Christ comes in the flesh. But there's this character called the angel of the Lord who is clearly much more than an angel. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because all throughout the Bible, whenever angels are worshipped, angels stop it. I'm guessing angels are pretty impressive creatures. I haven't seen one. But it seems like most of the time in Scripture, when somebody sees an angel, they fall out. It's, they're pretty overwhelmed. As a matter of fact, it's so impressive, it's easy to assume that that must be God. And we begin to worship that angel. And every single time, Old Testament and New Testament, that angel will say, Stop! I'm a creature, just like you. Worship the Creator alone. Angels always stop people from worshiping Him, except the angel of the Lord. We see the angel of the Lord worshiped, and He never stops. And there's no retribution for the angel of the Lord stopping that worship. We also see the angel of the Lord express attributes of deity. Do things that only God can do. We open up stories and we see this angel of the Lord, this character we call the angel of the Lord. And in the same story, all of a sudden it flips and it just refers to him as the Lord. And yet we saw the Lord speaking to the angel of the Lord. So who is this angel of the Lord? Most theologians believe it is the pre-incarnate, the before flesh, second member of the Trinity. It's Jesus Christ. It's hard to understand that until all of a sudden the New Testament gives us a more fuller presentation of the Trinity. We come back into the old and all of a sudden those passages start to make a lot more sense. So while it's clearer in the new, the Trinity is in the Old Testament. Now, there's a lot of analogies. People like to use analogy. You know, analogies is something that helps us understand. You know, what, what is the Trinity? Well, look at this. This will help you understand what the Trinity is. We point to triangles and, and apples and eggs and try to explain the Trinity. I hate analogies of the Trinity. And I'll tell you why. Because every one of them falls short. And where an analogy falls short, that becomes a wrong thinking about what the Trinity is. Friends, I'll use the egg. You may have heard this before. You got one egg, 
But it's three parts. You've got the shell, you've got the yolk, and you've got the white. Three parts, but one egg. There's just one problem. The shell by itself is not the egg. The yolk by itself is not the egg. The white by itself is not the egg. But that is true of the Holy Spirit. Yes, there's one God, there's these three parts, but Jesus all by himself, 100% God. We saw that in Colossians 2.9. God the Father all by himself, 100% God. God the Holy Spirit all by himself, 100% God. All the analogies fall short of trying to express what the Trinity is. The fact, folks, there's nothing in creation. Remember, our God is infinite. There's nothing in the finite realm. There's nothing in the created world that we can point to and say, look, that's what the Trinity... That's how you have three, but it's really one. It's one, but there's this three. It doesn't make any sense. You know, maybe would somebody come along here and say, you know, have y'all ever just thought that maybe, maybe the Bible just messed up on this? I mean, it's a contradiction. It can't be. Just accept it for what it is. You know what, folks? Calling it a contradiction would be the easy way out. I, 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 I mean, we got 66 books here. I wish 62 of them said there's one God, one God, one God, one God. But all of a sudden, Haggai popped up. Y'all don't get by Haggai very much, do you? Shame on you. But Haggai pops up and says, oh, no, there's a threeness. Zechariah pops up. Oh, no, there's a threeness. Jude pops up. Oh, no, there's a three. I mean, it'd be nice if we had this overwhelming evidence that it's all this is one. But then, the, you know, a couple of we get a couple of stray writers who run off and try to explain this. Yeah, we might look at that. There seems to be a contradiction there. The problem is that's not what it looks like. This oneness and this threeness is weaved together all the way in and through and out Scripture. As a matter of fact, I quoted 1 Corinthians 8, 4 a moment ago. In the same verse, it shows the oneness and the Trinity. It shows the oneness. It says God is one and then shows both God the Father and God the Son. I mean, that, that, it's not a contradiction. These writers, God has done this on purpose. They have purposely, intentionally shown us this something that we're not going to grasp. That we're just not going to quite get a hold of this idea that there is one God there is not three gods but inside that oneness there is a threeness there is God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and we scratch our heads and say that just doesn't make sense and that's where we come and say you know what God's operating in a realm I can't fully comprehend God in himself is something I cannot fully comprehend this is what he has revealed about himself and we accept it by faith See, now what do I know? I know God is truth. That means he doesn't deceive, he doesn't lie. Okay, so I can't quite grasp this, but I do know that God is truth, so I trust he's telling me the truth here. You know, maybe you like um, definitions. There, there was an old theologian by the name of B.B. Warfield that has a, a pretty simple, yet pretty comprehensive definition of what the Trinity is. Look at this definition. There is one only and true God. One God. There's the oneness. But in the unity of the Godhead, there are three, and these are two very important words, co-eternal and co-equal persons. They're the same in substance. If you went home and looked up the word substance, it's matter. It's stuff. 
They're the same in stuff. They're one stuff. There's just one God there. But they are distinct in subsistence. That's their existence. That's their reality. Did that clear it up for you? Good. Go home and chew on that this week. And when it's clear, you come back and help me with it, okay? But that's a, that's a definition of the Trinity. Let me leave you with four things this morning. Just four, four thoughts on the Trinity. First of all, the Trinity to me is proof that you and I are going to have the opportunity to study God, to know God for all of eternity. His many facets, His many complexities. We can study Him and learn about Him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And we're never going to know all there is to know about God. He is both knowable and incomprehensible. All at exactly the same moment. Another thought on the Trinity. It is, and we saw this in that definition, the Trinity is eternal. There has always been a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. And everything we've studied these last two weeks in the attributes of God, in the names of God, you can take those and they apply equally and fully to each and every member of the Trinity. Third idea. You can and should pray to God in general. Use those names, Elohim, Yahweh. But you can and should also pray to each member of the Trinity. I think probably a lot of us are very used to saying, Dear God, dear Father, Lord God, Father, Jesus, dear Jesus. Probably, uh, you know, as Southern Baptists, sometimes we get tripped up in our pneumatology, our study of the Holy Spirit. We're maybe not as used to praying the Holy Spirit. That's an error on our part. You can and should pray to the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a perfect place for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, you remember a while back we talked about what is the Bible. The Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity that guided and protected that word as it left the mouth of God and went through man and onto the pen, in through the pen and onto the paper. It's the Holy Spirit that guided and protected that what landed on paper was actually God's Word. It's the Holy Spirit that guided men to bring together what we call the Bible, these 66 books. So it is the Holy Spirit that has protected and delivered to us this book right here. And Jesus said, I'm going to send you somebody. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and he's going to guide you in all truth. So if I sit down tomorrow morning, a very good prayer is Holy Spirit. I'm about to read the word you delivered to me. Help me to understand it. Guide me in this truth. Help me to understand this truth. Help me to apply this truth. And then as I walk out the door today, help me to live this truth. Yeah, can you pray that to God in general? Absolutely. But if you were going to pray specifically to a member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the one who plays the role in bringing this word to life in your life and then empowering you to live it. We should pray to all three members of the Trinity. And then lastly, you can know and should know and worship and serve all three members of the Trinity, knowing that you're serving one God. There's three, but don't picture three. There's one. But wait a minute, there's three. Yeah, it's a tough one. This is a hard one to grasp. Now, here's what we're going to do. Next week, of course, is Easter. So we're going to step out of the series a little bit and do an Easter message next week. But when we come back, we're going to take this sermon today and we're going to break it down into guess how many parts? 
Man, y'all are sharp this morning. We've had our coffee, haven't we? Our next three sermons are going to be, what is God the Father? Now you say, well, I thought we've been studying God. We looked at his names. We looked at his attributes, the entirety of God. But we're going to break down and we're going to look at what is the specific role of God the Father as revealed in Scripture? What is the specific role of God the Son and then, of course, God the Holy Spirit? That's what we'll be coming back and doing. Now, as we finish today, here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to read a passage to you. And, and as I do that, I want you just to listen. As I read this passage, I want you to think to yourself, man, Lord, you've really presented something about yourself here that, that, that's just more... I mean, God, you created my brain, and you knew it would never get around this. You knew my brain could never fully grasp there's one God, but there's three, there's three, but there's only one. What does that mean? What does that look like? And I've got nothing in the universe to point to to say that's what it looks like. So God, you've revealed this thing about yourself that's just a little bit more than I can get my arms around. So as you're dealing with that thought, I want you to listen to this passage. I'm reading out of Psalm 89. I'm not reading the whole psalm. I'm going to start in verse 5, and the verses I read are not going to be all in a row. I'm kind of plucking some out of Psalm 89. But as you're thinking about this God who's revealed himself in a way that's just a little bit complex, listen to this. Psalm 89, verse 5, Lord, the heavens praise your wonders, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can compare to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? God is greatly feared in the council of the holy ones, more awe-inspiring than all who surround him. Lord God of hosts, that name should sound familiar, Lord God of hosts, who is strong like you? The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and everything in it, you founded them. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. Happy are the people who know the joyful shout. Lord, they walk in the light of your presence. They rejoice in your name. Did you rejoice in the name of God this past week? They rejoice in your name all day long and they are exalted by your righteousness for you are their magnificent strength. What do I know about God? I know he's righteous. He's right by me. He's right by himself. He is right by his creation. I know he's truth. He doesn't lie. He doesn't deceive. He doesn't trick He's not purposely confusing. He's not accidentally confusing. I know that, just think of some of the words we just heard. I know that he is awe-inspiring. I know that he is magnificent. And I know that he is incomparable. As you're trying to understand God, listen to the revelation of Scripture. There is nothing in your realm of existence. There is nothing in your understanding that is like God. Wow. Hey, that's the God we trust in. That's the God we serve. That's the God we worship. Let's pray. Father, we come today to worship you and your complexity and your magnificent in your awe-inspiring nature 
We worship you because you have made yourself known. God, you've even made yourself known in ways that you know are simply beyond our ability to grasp. But God, may we not quit there. Give us the discipline to study, to dig into your word, to see all that you've revealed and all that you've given us to understand about this truth. And may we walk with you by faith. Knowing that you are one God. God the Father. God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit. Who loves me. Who has saved me. Who is intimately involved in my life. Who has a plan and a purpose. That even involves the stuff I don't like. I guess a complex, awe-inspiring, magnificent God can do that. While there are things beyond my strength, while there are things beyond my understanding, there is nothing beyond your strength. There's nothing beyond your understanding. And we worship you for it. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.